Hello and welcome to Gimme Some Truth, the research-based podcast unraveling the fact from the fiction in the history of the Beatles. This is episode four, and I'm your host, Obadiah. It's been a hard day's night. Instantly recognizable. A beautiful harmonic explosion. The famously confusing opening chord for a hard day's night. This chord has been dissected for decades by fans, musicologists, and musicians, but I have yet to hear a clear, comprehensive explanation of the elements that make up this opening collected in one place. As much as I love to dig into the dates and facts, my love for the Beatles has always been first and foremost about their music. As a musician and songwriter, I want to make this a more music-focused episode. So here is my attempt at finding the truth about the opening chord to A Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. The Beatles were already a month and a half into filming their first feature-length film when the team, including director Richard Lester and producer Walter Shenson, agreed that they would use a funny phrase, a malapropism Ringo had come up with the previous year. John had already made use of the phrase in a short story called Sad Michael from his first book in his own right. John's book had been published on the 23rd of March, 1964, three weeks before the title was chosen for the film, but the manuscript had been finished by early January. On the 16th of April, London's Daily Herald reported that the film which the Beatles are making was named last night, four weeks after shooting started. It will be called A Hard Day's Night. In fact, the title had been decided on several days before. United Artists issued a press release on the 13th of April announcing the new title. It was on the 16th of April, the same day as the Daily Herald headline, and after a hard day's filming work on location around Notting Hill Gate, that the Beatles went into EMI Studio 2 to record the title song. In the few days between when the title had been set and this recording session, John had written the song A Hard Day's Night in one evening, most likely the 13th of April. John scrawled out the lyrics on the back of a card for his son Julian, who had celebrated his first birthday five days before. John brought the mostly finished song onto the film set the next morning. He and Paul hammered out the melody of the middle eight, and they previewed the song to Shenson in their dressing room. Shenson said in 1996, It had the right beat, and the arrangement was brilliant. These guys were geniuses. As the 7 p.m. recording session got underway, an arrangement was cooked up quickly during rehearsals. From the first take, the arrangement and song structure were mostly in place, including the idea of the opening chord. But what John, Paul, and George played evolved as the group found the perfect combination of notes from take to take. In Mark Lewison's The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions, George Martin remembered, We knew it would open the film and the soundtrack LP, so we wanted a particularly strong and effective beginning. The strident guitar chord was the perfect launch. Only nine takes were needed to get the best take, and only five of those takes were complete. But although the other four takes were incomplete, all nine takes include an attempt at the mysterious chord. The slight variations between takes help to identify what the two guitars, bass, and drums are playing on the final version four out of the five elements that make up this magic chord. For the first four takes, tape echo was added live in the control room over the opening chord. 
This extra shimmery idea can be heard on Take One, included in the Beatles Anthology One compilation, but was ditched from Take Five onward. It's been a hard day's night. Take Five was erroneously announced on the tapes as Take Four by engineer Norman Smith because John had missed his entrance after the opening chord of Take Three and then counted in Take Four without giving Smith time to call a new take. This is why Take Five announced as take four, is then followed by take six, correctly announced as such. Take six! In the stereo mix of the track, which I used for reference, the drums, bass, and George's guitar are panned to the left channel, while John's guitar and George Martin's piano parts are panned to the right channel. This was useful in order to isolate each part. The first part of the arrangement we will identify is the drums. Ringo added a punch to the chord by striking his 14-inch Ludwig Jazz Festival snare drum, ride cymbal, and kick drum. Shout out to Joe Montague from allyouneedisdrums.com and That 60s Recording Podcast for offering the free isolated drum stems on his website. That's right. The drums are quite low in the mix of the opening chord, so it's difficult to make out the cymbal because it's masked by George's 12-string. However, by putting a high-pass filter on the left channel of the stereo mix at 500 Hz and scooping out the 12-string guitar between 2 and 3 kHz, we can clearly hear the crash of the cymbal. As for the kick drum, it's very difficult to hear whether Ringo played it or not underneath everything else that's going on. In the early 1960s, kick drums in general were not mixed very prominently. It's unlikely, however, that a drummer would add a cymbal accent without a supporting kick, and by isolating the frequencies, I can hear the presence of a kick around 75 hertz. In live versions of A Hard Day's Night, recorded later in 1964, Ringo consistently played the same part. In a 14th of July BBC recording for the program Top Gear, Ringo's ride cymbal is more prominent. Also, in live film footage from their Hollywood Bowl concert that same year, we can see Ringo hit his ride cymbal as they crash into the song. That's good old reliable Ringo. Next we have Paul on his left-handed Hofner 501 violin bass, plugged into his Vox AC100 amp. It is widely suggested that Paul played a single high D3, the D below middle C on a piano. On a bass guitar, this note can be played either on the 12th fret of the D string or on the 7th fret of the top G string. D3 certainly rings out loud and clear and seems to build in intensity as the compressor releases. In fact, the high D3 on the recording is almost a quarter tone sharp on its way to an E flat. There is also, however, a low D2 resonating underneath. Both notes show up visually on a frequency analyzer around 147 Hz and 73 Hz, respectively. While recreating the opening chord, I tried recording the bass only playing the higher D3, and the bottom end was completely missing. Here is what the Beatles recording sounds like with all high frequencies filtered out and the bass isolated. For takes 1 to 4, Paul only played the single high D3. From take 5 to the final take 9, we can hear Paul introduce the low D2 played on the A string 5th fret, while the D3 is fretted on the G string 7th fret. 
Just before John counted in take six, Paul had a quick practice and played these octave D notes on his own. For the same BBC Top Gear recording, Paul played the opening in octaves again. Confusingly, Paul has changed his part over the years, sometimes playing the verse in the second octave, sometimes playing it in the first octave. On the different studio takes, Paul experimented with playing his verse part in different octaves, finally settling on the lowest octave from take six onward. These days, when performing the song with his touring band, Paul only plays the single lower D2 for the opening chord. But on the record, he played octaves, which sound like this. To hear how important the choice of the note D in the bass is to the overall sound of the opening, we only need to listen to take 8, where Paul, who was rehearsing the song's middle 8, was caught unaware by John's count-in and accidentally played a low A2 instead. Take 8! Shut up! <coughs> I wish we had the words written out properly. <laughs> oh, one, two, three, four. <laughs> Now, with Ringo and Paul's part solved, we must tackle the guitars and piano. This is where the magic, mystery, and confusion of the opening chord gets really interesting. On the 28th of November, 1984, George was in Auckland, New Zealand, promoting Derek Taylor's fabulously insightful memoir, Fifty Years Adrift, for which he had acted as editor and contributed annotations and archive material. As the press conference was winding down, an enthusiastic audience member interrupted Derek Taylor to ask George about the Hard Day's Night Chord. Really, I'm everything short of crime. George, there's been very little. Please, after years and years of trying, how the hell do you play the opening chord to a hard day's night? I'll tell you after, Mr. Taylor. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, Derek. Is, um, That's all right. And to answer your question, it's F with a G on the first string. Thank you very much. Your little finger. Thank you very much. Sounds better on a 12 string. Since we already know what Paul and Ringo played, George's insight gets us three fifths of the way to understanding the opening. George played an F with an added high G on his 1963 Rickenbacker 360 12-string electric guitar. George had acquired this model only the second made by the company, directly from Rickenbacker owner and president Francis C. Hall in New York on the Beatles' first American visit in February that year. The chord George says he played is an F add 9, made up of the notes F, A, C, and G. Indeed, after take six of the original session tapes breaks down, George demonstrates the opening to John, and we can hear him clearly play this F add nine in isolation. Take seven. What was it? I heard a funny chord. Pardon? Yeah, not half you didn't. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry. John, it seems, was losing the beat and struggling to come in in the right place with his vocal after the powerful opening. 
George suggested that Ringo could tap his hi-hat to mark the time, and John agreed. Take three was also aborted after the opening chord because John missed the beat. One, two, three, four. The outro of the song reinforces what George is playing for the opening chord because he uses the same chord shape. For the outro, George arpeggiated the F add 9, spelling out for us what notes are included in the chord. Once again, we hear the notes F, A, C, and G chiming out from the 12 string Rickenbacker. It is noteworthy that George did not alternate between F add 9 and a regular F chord by lifting his pinky from the top string as is sometimes suggested. The F notes we hear in the arpeggio are played on the D string 3rd fret, and we hear both an F3 and a higher F4 because of the nature of the 12 string guitar. George fumbled this outro part on every take, and the final version was done as an overdub like the guitar solo. Both parts were so difficult for George to play live that on the Top Gear recording, they not too subtly spliced in the solo and the outro from the studio recording, and then joked about how it sounded just like the record. In other live versions, they skipped the arpeggiated outro altogether. Which leads us to what John played. Undoubtedly, John used his Gibson J160E acoustic guitar, which he used for many of the songs on this album. Actually, he used George's because his had been stolen the previous December, and he wouldn't get a replacement until the end of August. John and George had acquired these identical Gibsons, especially imported from the USA, on the 10th of September, 1962. Although it is an acoustic guitar, a single pickup by the neck allows the guitar to be plugged into an amplifier, and John used this to great effect on many of the early Beatles records in place of his electric Rickenbacker. Take two. Okay. One, two, three, four. As we can hear, take two ground to a halt immediately after George played the wrong opening chord. It's hard to make out what George played, but it seems to have been some form of G7. John and Paul were quick to tell him off. John then strummed the right chord. What John plays here in isolation is a D7 sus4, clearly on an acoustic guitar. This chord shares all the same notes with George's F add 9, except that the F is lowered to the open D string by lifting the ring finger on his left hand off the 3rd fret. In fact, both John and George played D7 sus4 on takes 1, 3, 5, and 6. This was the original design for the opening chord, but before take 7, they hit upon the idea of using the bluesy flavor of the F add 9 instead, possibly because one of them had accidentally played it on take 4. After all, George was already using this chord shape for the outro. To make his chord as harmonically full as possible, 
John wrapped his thumb around the neck to add an F2 note on the low E string first fret, let the open A string ring out, and strummed all six strings of his Gibson acoustic. In footage from their 20th of June 1965 concert in Paris, John clearly can be seen playing this somewhat clunky shape. In some ways, John's part has always been the hardest to discern in the mix. This changed, however, with the surround sound mixes Giles Martin produced for Cirque du Soleil and the Beatles' Love Show and Album. By isolating John's acoustic guitar from these mixes, the FAD 9 is clear as day. This leaves the final element of the opening chord, George Martin's piano, played on one of the two available Steinway pianos on hand in Studio 2. It has been suggested that it was the so-called Mrs. Mills upright Steinway Vertigrand, but this piano has a very bright metallic sound that was featured on such tracks as Penny Lane or With a Little Help My Friends. I think it was more likely the Steinway Model B Grand Piano, which even when recorded at half-time and sped up to double the guitar solo, has a darker sound that is not as bright as the Mrs. Mills upright. In a BBC documentary about the making of his 1998 Beatles cover album, In My Life, on which Goldie Hawn sang a jazzy cover of A Hard Day's Night, George Martin was interviewed about the song. A Hard Day's Night was originally written as the theme tune of the picture. And when we came to record it, it was a driving, rocking song with John Lennon singing the lead. And we were looking for something big to open it with, uh, an introduction. And I said it needed a, a strong chord, to, like a dramatic thing. And John hit a chord, which I still to this day don't know exactly what the notes were, but it was almost the open strings. It was a kind of... <laughs> that wasn't it, but it was something like that. From George Martin's recollections, it seems he was remembering the original concept for the chord, D7 sus4. He said they were trying to think of a strong opening chord, and John struck something that made them all perk up using almost the open strings. The notes of the open strings for a guitar in standard tuning are from low to high, E, A, D, G, B, E. D7 sus4 contains three of these five open string notes. D, A, and G, and adds the note C. So, almost the open strings. When George Martin came to overdub his crashing piano intro, he still had these notes in mind. His piano chord is made up of five notes. D2 and D3, doubling both octaves that Paul plays on bass, G2 and G3, and C4. The G and C notes reinforce notes that are in both D7 sus4 and FAD9. George Martin is essentially playing an open-voiced D7 sus4 without the fifth note, A. To better understand what is happening here, forgive me for a somewhat lengthy diversion into music theory. A Hard Day's Night is written in the guitar-friendly key of G major. This means that using G as our starting note, we can sing Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do to get all the notes in a G major scale. In a major scale, the chord that is built on the fifth note, Sol, is called a dominant chord. Dominant chords lead really well back into the root chord, which is a chord change you have heard a million times in popular music. 
In the key of G, the dominant chord is D major, which resolves beautifully back to G major. This essentially is what is happening at the start of A Hard Day's Night. Paul's D bass note identifies the chord as being some form of D chord, and this resolves into the beginning of the verse, which starts on a G major chord. On takes 1 to 6, the D7 sus4 to G is a simpler, more diatonic version of the chordal movement we hear on the final recording. But it gets a little more complicated than that. In our standard G major scale, the seventh note, T, which leads us back to the first note again, is an F sharp. Yet we know George and John are playing F naturals in the opening, not F sharp. There is also an F natural chord in the verse, and John's verse melody uses the note F natural instead of F sharp. F is the flat seven note in the key of G a semitone or half-step lower than the natural seventh, F-sharp. When a melody uses notes that are outside of the standard major scale, it is called a mode. In this case, John's first melody uses the mixolydian mode, which gives the song a distinctly bluesy flavor. By introducing the F-note into the opening, they drastically change the character of the overall chord. The music theory lesson is almost over, but there's one more important concept to understand. All basic chords are made up of a root note, a third, and a fifth. These come from the corresponding degrees in the scale. A G major chord, for example, is made up of the following notes. The root G, the third B, and the fifth D. It is the third of the chord that gives it its main characteristic, whether it's major and happy sounding, or minor and sad. On top of the basic chord, you can add other extension notes to give the chord more color. These are sevenths, ninths, elevenths, and or thirteenths. In the case of D7 sus4, we start with a basic D chord made up of the root note D, the third F sharp, and the fifth A. Then we add the note C, which is the flat seventh, and the sus4 tells us that the third, F sharp, has been raised or suspended to the note G, the fourth. All this is to say that when F add 9 and D7 sus4 are sounded at the same time, almost all the notes, A, C, and G, are the same except for the F natural. This single note creates a huge amount of harmonic ambiguity because the chord that has a root note of D, a third of F natural, and a fifth of A is D minor, not D major. In the key of G, the key of A Hard Day's Night, our ears expect to hear the note F sharp. But in the opening chord, we instead hear both F natural and G natural, which makes it difficult for our ears to know how to define the chord. So that's it. These five elements, drums, bass, 12-string electric guitar, 6-string acoustic guitar, and piano, make up the complex harmonic color of the opening chord. Each part is essential to the overall impact of the chord, and the piano is often overlooked when attempting to recreate it. For example, many cover bands who don't have a fifth member leave out the piano altogether. The Beatles themselves had to make do without the piano when they performed the song live. The individual guitars and piano each play their own chords as we have discussed, but all the elements combine to create one big chord as well. What should we call this leviathan? 
Since the bass and piano are both playing the notes D2 and D3 as the bottom of the chord, one way to analyze it is as some form of a D chord. The distinctly different notes played across all instruments are D2, F2, G2, A2, D3, F3, G3, A3, C4, F4, G4, and A4. I believe the three clusters of the neighboring notes F, G, and A in three octaves are what make this chord so juicy. One way to name this 12-note chord would be D minor 7 add 11, or D minor 11 without the 9th because there is no E note. This chord name recognizes the F as the minor 3rd, and the strong presence of the note G in three octaves as the 4th or 11th relative to the root note D. Another name for the chord could be D7 sus4 with a sharp 9, recasting the F notes as raised seconds or ninths instead of seeing them as minor thirds. If we stop looking at the chord as a form of D, perhaps the most simple name would be F add 9 over D, or F add 9 with a D in the bass. One popular theory among guitarists is that the chord is G7 sus4 over Paul's D bass note. While this isn't what was played on the record, it does satisfyingly include the G2, D3, F3, C4, and G4 notes with an extra D4. This covers the different note names and is a rough approximation of the chord, but is not holistically accurate. What label we stick on this mystical chord, however, is only semantics. Something truly magical came together on this recording nearly 60 years ago. The notes and the timbre of the instruments combined with the musicians who are playing them, the ambiance of EMI Studio 2, and the recording gear to create a sound that will likely never be recaptured. Luckily, we have it on record to play over and over and marvel at its beauty. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping Before we go, I want to play you my recreation of the opening chord next to the original. First, here is the original one, one more time. Now, here is my recording. What do you think? Thanks for listening. I also want to say a big thank you to Liam Neri, who mixed the theme music for this podcast and my recreation of the Hard Day's Night chord for his help in analyzing the chord and pointing me in the right direction. Thank you also to Ian from God's Own Guitars for renting me his beautiful 1989 Rickenbacker 330 12-string. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com or contact me on Facebook or Instagram at gimmesometruthpod. I will post visuals for each episode on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star review to help me reach more listeners.